Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Welcome back, CardioNerds family. Dan Ambender here. This episode continues the CardioNerds Lipid Series, which is a comprehensive, all-you-need-to-know series led by co-chairs Dr. Rick Ferraro, Director of Journal Club for the CardioNerds Academy and Cardiology Fellow at the Johns Hopkins Hospital, and Dr. Tommy Das, Program Director of the CardioNerds Academy and Cardiology Fellow at the Cleveland Clinic, and is produced in collaboration with the American Society for Preventive Cardiology. In this episode, Tommy and I are joined by episode lead, CardioNerds Academy Fellow, of House Tausig and future chief fellow of the 2022 Academy class, Dr. Theodora Donison, for a trip to UCLA to learn all about triglycerides from pathophysiology to clinical outcomes from prevention expert, Dr. Matthew Budoff. If you're enjoying the episode or show, please consider supporting the show by rating and reviewing us on your favorite podcast platform and think of somebody who would enjoy the podcast and spread the Cardi Nerds word. If they are new to podcasting, just hop on their phone and show them how to subscribe. Finally, this podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. CardioNerds is an independent, fellow-founded platform with the mission to democratize cardiovascular education. To continue creating free and unbiased quality content, we are proud to collaborate with all stakeholders, including trainees, experts, fellowship programs, professional societies, industry, and patient advocacy groups. This episode is made possible by unrestricted support from Amarin. Relevant disclosures can be found in the episode show notes. And the curriculum and content is planned, produced, and reviewed solely by cardio nerds without external bias. And with that, let's let Tommy kick off this triglycerides extravaganza. Hey, cardio nerds and prevention enthusiasts. Welcome to a new chapter in our series on lipids and preventative cardiology, where we'll take a deep six-episode dive into the slippery world of triglycerides. In this series, we'll explore the biochemistry of triglycerides, their association with cardiovascular disease, as well as the potentially controversial yet very impactful novel therapeutics for patients with hypertriglyceridemia. Dan and I have a great team with us today. We're going to be joined by Dr. Matthew Budoff and Dr. Theodora Donison. Theo is a third-year internal medicine resident at Beaumont Hospital in Royal Oak, Michigan. She completed her medical school at the Carol Devia University of Medicine and Pharmacy in her home country of Romania. After medical school, she finished two years of cardiology residency in Bucharest followed by a research fellowship in interventional cardio-oncology at MT Anderson in Texas. She is a CardioNerds Fellow in House Tausig, and we are very, very excited to have her here with us today. Welcome, Tio. Hello, everybody, and thank you for the kind introduction. I have the privilege of introducing Dr. Matthew Budoff, Professor of Medicine at the David Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA and the Endowed Chair of Preventive Cardiology at Harbor UCLA Medical Center. Dr. Budoff's research focus is devoted to cardiac prevention, early coronary atherosclerosis detection, and determining the effect of therapeutic options to stabilize and reverse coronary atherosclerosis. He was awarded the Albert Nelson Marquis Lifetime Achievement Award in 2018 and was named to the world's most influential scientific researchers in 2018 and in 2019. We are thrilled to learn from Dr. Budoff today. Welcome to Cardio Nurse, Dr. Budoff. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for having me on. Dr. Budoff, it's a real, real pleasure. We've been looking forward to having you for quite some time. And thank you so much for taking time to join us today. 
We definitely want to kick this off by asking you the question we asked many of our faculty guests who have joined the series. How did you get interested in cardiovascular prevention? Well, you know, it went back to when I was introduced to actually the coronary calcium scanning as an intern in internal medicine. I, I was working with the chief of cardiology at the time, and he told me that he had this mammogram of the heart that we're going to be using in practice to find early heart disease and getting people on the road to better treatments and better behavior long before their first heart attack or stroke or CV death. And that really got me started down this road. And, you know, as they say, the rest is uh, history. I've been fortunate to be in the right place at the right time and, and really be at the forefront of some of these imaging modalities that have now become more commonplace. That sounds very exciting. So, you know, let's start by talking about the structure and metabolism of triglycerides. I know biochemistry can be a bit challenging, but, you know, let's try to tackle this subject together. I'll just go through a few basics. Triglycerides are hydrophobic substances which are packed into the core of lipoprotein. Lipoproteins are covered by lipids and proteins that can travel freely through the extracellular environments inside the body, and these are called together apolipoproteins. The main way to transport dietary and endogenous triglycerides to the tissues is through two types of triglyceride-rich lipoproteins secreted by the intestine and the liver, chylomicrons and very low-density lipoproteins, or VLDL. In order to unpack these triglyceride-rich lipoproteins, the body produces lipoprotein lipase, which releases free fatty acids and remnant lipoproteins. I don't know if you're all still following me. I know this is all complicated, but basically, triglycerides can be endogenous, produced by the liver, or exogenous, from diet absorbed by the intestine. In order for these to be transported through the, throughout the body, they're covered by apolipoproteins, giving rise to VLDL from the liver, and chylomicrons from the intestine. Once they reach the tissues, they are again broken down into so-called product of interest, which is the free fatty acid, and a byproduct, which is remnant lipoproteins. The main places in the body where this process occurs is the adipose tissue, where free fatty acids are used for storage, and in the muscle tissue. Both the skeletal muscle and the cardiac muscle use free fatty acids as an energy source for muscle contraction. Remnant chylomicrons and VLDL are then mostly taken up by the liver using LDL receptors, and they are then used to produce VLDL or LDL again, so recycled. But some of the remnant hypolipoproteins can be taken up by the vessel wall, and it can promote endothelial dysfunction, vascular inflammation, and atherogenesis. So this was all. Congrats, we're done with the biochemistry. Dan, can you tell us a bit about the definition of hypertriglyceridemia? Absolutely. And Tio, that was a great, great synopsis of the biochemistry and how triglycerides can become clinically relevant in pathophysiology. So well done. I definitely followed that. Now, when it comes to triglycerides or any lipids, we definitely want to know normal levels and then abnormal levels and classifying those as such. So the normal triglyceride levels in American men and women are 128 milligrams per deciliter and 110 milligrams per deciliter, respectively. Hypertriglyceridemia is defined as a fasting triglyceride level of 150 milligrams per deciliter or more by most guidelines and expert committees. Dr. Budov, is there any clinical significance for the way that different societies further classify hypertriglyceridemia? Well, you know, the triglyceride abnormalities probably go even below 
what's considered normal at 150. And, and we've seen an association of triglycerides and cardiovascular events that goes down probably even below 100 milligrams per deciliter. So I kind of think of triglycerides like I think of fasting glucose, where you really want to be at a very low number. And, and even in that borderline zone, before we call it diabetes, people are at increased cardiovascular risk. Having said that, almost all of the societies define normal as 150 or lower, and then borderline high or mild abnormalities from 150 and up. After that, there are some nuances between the American Heart and American College of Cardiology and the Endocrine Society, but you know, 150 to probably 500 is how we typify most of them in the United States, and greater than 500 is considered very high or severe hypertriglyceridemia. And that's really where we start thinking about pancreatitis more so than uh, cardiovascular risk or pancreatitis on top of cardiovascular risk. Thank you so much for going through that framework for the different brackets of hypertriglyceridemia. And I really like the corollary to diabetes and identifying people who are at potential increased risk, who aren't quite at hypertriglyceridemia yet, but are on the way towards it and need to be identified. And I think it's important now that we've established where the goalposts for triglyceride levels are, we can talk a little bit about how we actually measure a patient's triglyceride levels. And you know, one question I get often from patients is whether they need to be fasting before they have their blood drawn. Now, generally speaking, fasting lipid levels are not a better predictor of cardiovascular events than non-fasting lipid levels. That being said, triglyceride levels in particular can change after eating. And so much so that the European Atherosclerosis Society recommends obtaining a fasting sample when non-fasting triglyceride levels are greater than 440 milligrams per deciliter. There are also some concerns that non-fasting triglyceride levels may actually be a better predictor of increased cardiovascular risks in fasting levels. So given these kind of conflicting opinions and all this concern for patients as well about how they should be eating or not eating before taking their labs, Dr. Budoff, what are your thoughts about fasting versus non-fasting lipid panels, particularly in relationship to triglyceride levels? So in the United States, we mostly use fasting lipid panels because we calculate LDL using the Friedewald equation. And therefore, we need the fasting number to, to get an accurate assessment of LDL, which is still obviously a very important part of our risk assessment and algorithms. Having said that, a non-fasting triglyceride is probably very informative of how well your body deals with the triglyceride load. And it has to do a lot with insulin as well as many other factors, some of the things that Tio went through as well. But I think that in the bottom line is, at least in the U.S., we mostly focus on the fasting sample because of its uniform way that it's been done, because that's how all the guidelines have been written. And that's how most of their clinical trials have been done. But I think of the non-fasting lipid panel, to use another analogy, as the same way as you might uh, use a glucose tolerance test to try to unmask somebody with diabetes, you can unmask somebody who doesn't deal with triglycerides well by getting a non-fasting level in that patient. So basically, Dr. Budoff, if, for example, I have a patient in clinic who has difficulty with transportation and whatnot, and I see them for a physical at 2 p.m., it's safe to just try to get a lipid panel, even if it's non-fasting, and take it from there? Yes, exactly. You know, if and if it's high, I, gr- I agree with, the, you know, the European society's, you know, guidelines. If, the, if they're very high, then 
clearly you need to do something different as far as evaluating that patient. But yeah, if you get a non-fasting level and it's elevated, just, just get a fasting level so that you can have a good baseline. Remember, the diet is so sensitive that if you go to one restaurant, I don't want to call out any any particular fast food restaurants, <laughs> you can elevate your triglycerides dramatically with just a very simple meal as compared to another meal. So somebody says, oh, I had lunch already. That's not the same for all of us. You know, lunch may be a salad or lunch may be, you know, French fries. And, and those are going to have a different effect on your triglycerides. And I think that's why we focus so much on, on fasting. So we kind of even the playing field and have a number that we can follow over time. That might actually be good for educating our patients who don't have healthy diets, right? Because if we see a sky high level of triglycerides, maybe they will have some evidence that what they're doing is objectively unhealthy. Yeah, you know, you can always tell a little trick that I've learned over the years is you can always tell when somebody's not compliant on their statins. Because if they're on their statin therapy or other lipid lowering therapy for LDL and the triglycerides are going up, then that usually implies that they're loosening their diet in accordance with now that they started their atorvastatin, they're comfortable not eating as healthy as they used to. And you'll see their LDL goes down, but their triglyceride levels go up and you know that they're liberalizing their diet. So it's actually a good insight into what they're eating to keep an eye on their triglycerides. <laughs> that's such a good trick. And, you know, I think that's uh, specifically important because of how frequent this problem is in the population. And actually, the next fact that I was going to talk about was how frequent a hypertriglyceridemia is. And it's actually the most common form of dyslipidemia in the general population. Um, approximately 55% of Americans have dyslipidemia. And 27% of those have elevated LDL, 23% have low HDL, and 30% have elevated triglyceride levels. Of these, men usually have a higher prevalence of hypertriglyceridemia than women, 27% in men and about 21.5% in, in women. The age distribution is also different between the genders, highest prevalence being in men ages from 40 to 59 years old and in women over 60 years old. Dr. Budoff, what is the clinical significance of these sex-based differences in your experience? Do you think we should pay some closer attention to any specific demographic groups, particularly when we think about screening for this hypertriglyceridemia or dyslipidemia? You know, I think the statistics you put out there are very important for people to recognize how prevalent high triglyceride levels are and really probably reflect, especially in the United States, a lot of metabolic syndrome type of activity where patients have this inflammatory state and the triglycerides go up. And obviously that probably speaks to their lack of exercise as well. And I think as you start seeing this distribution, you could probably correlate it a little bit with lifestyle. And maybe women are slowing down over age 60 and therefore triglyceride levels are sneaking up as compared to men. But I think we need to think about this. We also need to keep an eye on ethnicity. You know, Hispanics have, have a much higher triglyceride levels than some of the other groups. And part of that has to do with, with diet, you know, going back to what we talked about earlier and the diet component of all of this. Eating a huge carbohydrate load is not going to be great for your triglyceride levels. Now, that's very helpful, Dr. Budup. And as we've been alluding to, elevated triglyceride levels can be caused by primary genetic abnormalities or can be secondary to other causes, as we're really touching on here. Primary genetic causes more frequently encountered include familial hypertriglyceride and familial combined hyperlipidemia, which are polygenic with environmental influences. 
followed by familial dysbeta lipoproteinemia, which is usually autosomal recessive, but can be autosomal dominant as well, and familial chylomicronemia syndrome, which is autosomal recessive and extremely rare. Now, causes that we more frequently encounter in our clinical practice include lifestyle factors, diet, alcohol, decreased physical activity, and smoking, and medical conditions such as obesity, metabolic syndrome, uncontrolled diabetes, pregnancy, Cushing's, hypothyroidism, and nephrotic syndrome. Now, we can't forget that there are medications that can cause mild to moderate elevations in triglycerides like non-selective beta blockers, atypical antipsychotics, or glucocorticoids, or ones that can cause severe triglyceridemia like estrogen, estrogen receptor blockers, propofol, interferon, and various cancer therapies. Thanks, Dan. Thanks for reviewing all those potential causes for hypertrichosideremia. I think what really drives home, though, is that, you know, there's a lot of different medications that can cause hypertrichosideremia, and it really highlights the importance of a careful medirect when we're interpreting these uh, lipid levels in our patients. You know, I think we've all seen patients, both inpatient and outpatient, who have Elevated triglyceride levels. And, you know, Dan, one of the things you mentioned is that there are some genetic predispositions and some phenotypes that, you know, if they're diagnosed in your patients, make a difference in terms of not only how you approach that patient's care in terms of lipid lowering therapy, but also how you think about genetic screening and risk reduction for that patient's family members as well. So, Dr. Budaf, I'd be kind of interested to hear how you approach the workup for a patient with hypertriglyceridemia. In particular, when do you actually pull the trigger on referring a patient for genetic testing and what's the potential benefit that may provide? Yeah. And, you know, I think that, you know, having that that list in the back of your head of the secondary causes is going to be important, especially, you know, depending on where you are. But, you know, where I am, you know, heavy alcohol use is a big contributor. Obviously, you know, some therapies such as the thiazides and non-selective beta blockers could contribute as well. And, and of course, uncontrolled diabetes is a very common one. And you want to rule those out pretty quickly before you start thinking about the genetic testing. You know, we, we know that these genetic abnormalities that cause hypertriglyceridemia, like familial chylomicronemia or others, um, are autosomal recessives and they cluster in families. So if you find one person with hypertriglyceridemia, and I'm usually looking when it's above 500 or even above 1,000 before I would even think about this, but if they have severe hypertriglyceridemia and they do not have a, an obvious secondary cause, then I would consider screening them only because, you know, it, it'll help you with their family members, uh, especially, you know, some families are quite large. And if they do have a secondary cause, then then the likelihood that this is going to be prevalent in their family members is going to be much higher. Yeah, actually, I just have a patient right now who has a significant dyslipidemia in his family, hypertriglyceridemia in his family, and he is here with a heart attack. So I think it's very important for us to monitor these things and to be aware of these things. Thank you for reviewing this with us. You know, the concerns associated with hypertriglyceridemia, as Dr. Budov mentioned earlier, include acute pancreatitis, but you know, here we're going to focus on the cardiovascular risk. We've discussed previously the biochemical components that contribute to atherosclerosis formation are remnant lipoproteins, not necessarily the triglycerides themselves. Reviewing the literature, hypertriglyceridemia is considered a risk-enhancing factor, not a risk factor. Dr. Budov, can you help us understand the difference between risk factors and risk-enhancing factors and why triglycerides do not count as, as a risk factor themselves? Yeah. So, you know, it goes back to the original calculations that we used to make with Framingham and other early risk calculators, LDL-dominated 
HDL was in there and triglycerides were generally not included. Also, as you mentioned, you know, there's a much stronger association with remnants and future CV risk than even triglycerides themselves. So, you know, triglycerides are definitely something that we're supposed to pay close attention to in the newer guidelines for cholesterol management. The definition for increased ASCVD risk is persistently elevated primary hypertriglyceridemia, and that's defined as greater than 175 milligrams per deciliter non-fasting. So that's very interesting because, you know, that's not exactly fits any of the other criteria that we've seen, but that that's now plugged into our new one as our risk enhancer is if their triglycerides are greater than 175 in a non-fasting state. And that's persistent elevations, not, not a one-time increase. The guidelines talk about how it's reasonable to use these additional risk-enhancing factors to guide decisions about preventive interventions, especially when we're on the fence about treatment. But I think in this case, it's going to be very important because it changes your management based on the outcome studies. And I think that that's really where, you know, we can individualize care by looking at the triglycerides, something that used to be overlooked quite a bit in the early guidelines. And now we're getting more attention, probably partially because we have potential treatments that can help us with that CB risk problem. That's a fantastic overview and also a a great segue into the next thing I want to ask you about. You know, we're talking about the trials regarding effect of lowering triglycerides and some of the potential therapeutics. And uh, I wanted to take this as an opportunity to talk a little bit about some of the recent data in this space, namely the strength and reduce it trials. And, you know, for our listeners, we're going to be having a much deeper dive into these trials in upcoming episodes. But in brief, just to lay the lay of the land, um, these are two large recently published trials, randomized controlled trials, look at the effects of different omega-3 fatty acid preparations on cardiovascular outcomes in patients with residual hypertriglyceridemia after starting statin therapy and being on consistent statin therapy. And it's important to note that patients in strength were treated with a combination of DHA and EPA, and they did not show a benefit in cardiovascular outcomes despite a uh, reduction in triglycerides. While patients can reduce it, they were treated with icosaptin ethyl, which is a pure EPA product, and they showed a marked benefit in cardiovascular outcomes that was actually out of proportion to triglyceride lowering. And so, Dr. Budov, how do you make sense of this data in terms of understanding triglycerides as a risk factor, particularly remnant hypertriglyceridemia after statin therapy, and the potential benefit of triglyceride reduction as a beneficial outcome to improve cardiovascular events? Yeah, no, a great question and, and, you know, packed with a lot of important nuances. But you have to remember that there's now a couple studies. There was a trial called JELIS, J-E-L-I-S, that also was done in Japan that showed that pure EPA reduced cardiovascular events. And in that trial, there was a 19% event reduction, which was statistically significant, but there was only a 5% reduction in triglycerides. So clearly, while the concept of EPA and DHA as fish oils have been used successfully to lower triglycerides, the effect when patients' triglycerides are in the more modest range are actually quite minimal. And really, the benefits that we've seen in the REDUCE-IT trial and in this JELIS trial related to the EPA and the icosapent ethyl 
that was used really probably has much different mechanisms of action. So in that context, I think of high triglycerides as a marker of risk. In other words, who should I treat with this therapy? And we have excellent data now to suggest that if you use icosapentethyl in the setting of mildly elevated triglycerides, you see a dramatic event reduction that's been reproduced now in a couple of trials, as well as in my work in the evaporate trial showing that a reduction in atherosclerosis in that same type of patient. Whereas EPA plus DHA in the STRENGTH trial, while it lowered triglycerides modestly, it did not lower cardiovascular events. And I think that might talk to the differential effects of DHA versus EPA that have now been shown in a number of basic science and translational studies. This was such a wonderful review, Dr. Budov, and I just needed to make a, a very small mention about our first ever journal club on Twitter by our Cardio Nerds Fellowship, which was exactly on strength trial, and it reviewed literature on EPA versus combinations between DHA and EPA, and it actually reviewed strengths. If you want more information, there's a, a very nice review table with all of these trials side by side and their results. You can find it in the slide notes or on the CardioNerds website. Yes, Dr. Budoff, that journal club was our first journal club, and TO was a major part of that and ended up helping us design so many of the journal clubs that we've done ever since. We'll definitely share that on the show notes. And we have a beautiful visual abstract of the strength trial that kind of reviews this as well. So hypertriglyceridemia is commonly associated with other dyslipidemias. So that actually makes the direct causal relationship between elevated triglyceridemia and atherogenesis difficult, which is kind of what we've been alluding to. Genetic association studies have tried to help with this clinical concern. And recent large-scale meta-analysis and population-based sequencing studies show that triglyceride-raising variant alleles show strong associations with cardiovascular endpoints. Additionally, patients with loss of function variants in gene encoding, which inhibits lipoprotein lipase, have been shown to have reduced triglyceride levels and decreased atherosclerotic risk. Dr. Budov, how do these genetic studies inform our understanding of the link between triglycerides and cardiovascular disease? And, you know, it's been a remarkable journey because for so long, the order of importance was LDL cholesterol, HDL cholesterol, and then, oh, by the way, maybe if triglycerides are out of proportion that you should pay some heed to that. And that really, as we found out, is not entirely correct. And there's been a lot of nice studies that have been done across very large cohorts looking at these polymorphisms and looking at the genetically determined triglyceride levels and how they were associated with ischemic heart disease. And when you adjust for these genetic predispositions to have high triglycerides and you adjust it for both LDL and HDL, you still have a very significant interaction that supports that triglycerides are associated with a long-term cardiac risk. Conversely, when you look at HDL, that entire relationship goes away. So when we start looking at low HDL, we're not seeing that same association. And that might harken back to a lot of the failed trials that we've had by trying to treat patients with low HDL with drugs like niacin, even estrogen and thiazolidinediones that raise HDL, but didn't really uniformly improve cardiovascular outcomes. So taken together, 
we now understand that lifetime triglycerides are, are a marker of cardiovascular risk and genetic predisposition to high triglycerides is an independent marker of risk, whereas low HDL cholesterol levels are not. Dr. Budoff, thank you for that perspective and especially looking at some of the older studies about providing niacin and HDL. And, you know, I think it really sets the stage for the next 10 years of preventative cardiology research and you know, we've identified these people now who are at increased risk. And not only have we identified them using these genetics and genomic studies, but we're also finding ways to treat them and improve their outcomes, which is so huge for patient care and so huge for outcomes moving forward. And, you know, Dr. Buff, I just want to thank you for such a fabulous discussion about this link between triglycerides and cardiovascular disease. And I also want to give a quick shout out to my partner in the preventative cardiology series, Dr. Rick Ferraro, who did a lot in terms of helping out with the script and is also single-handedly keeping the consult service afloat right now as a first-year fellow at Hopkins and otherwise he'd be here with us on the recording as well. But, you know, one thing I know when I talk to Rick later is he's going to want to know, like, what do we talk about with Dr. Budoff? And so, Dr. Budoff, what are your main takeaways for us here at the Cardio Nerds? So first and foremost, we have to back away from using fibrates for cardiovascular event prevention. Right now, fibrates, even though they lower triglycerides more than icosapendethyl and more than other therapies, they have not been shown to be beneficial. And, and when we talk about high triglycerides, it's so easy to think about reaching for that fibrate and getting people on phenofibrate and lowering that triglycerides with a very low side effect profile. But the FDA a couple of years ago literally took away the indication of use of phenofibrates with statins because all we saw was, was toxicity with no benefit. Now, having said that, there is a trial coming up that I'm very enthusiastic about waiting for the results, and that's called the Prominent Trial. It's being done up at Mass General, being led by Peter Libby and Paul Ritger, looking at Pima fibrate, and they're studying patients with high triglycerides. So we'll see if that has any cardiovascular benefit. But right now, rule number one for high triglycerides, if they're under 500, think about icosapent ethyl as the treatment of choice. If that's not available, even though there are now generic versions of it, then think about pure EPA and not a combination of DHA and EPA whenever possible, because a lot of the dietary supplements are impure. And, you know, it's fish that's been maybe not cared for, maybe not refrigerated. You know, you have to remember fish oils are derived from fish. And if they're not kept well, we all know what happens to fish if it's, if it's not, you know, kept at the right temperatures and all of that. So, so I'd be very cautious about the dietary supplements for patients who are trying to find a less expensive alternative for their triglyceride abnormalities. And finally, as we talked about before, make sure you think about those secondary causes. They're very prevalent in the United States, poorly controlled diabetes, heavy alcohol use, you know, hypothyroidism, some of the medications that are pretty common like thiazides and beta blockers, and of course, you know, pregnancy and, and estrogen as potential causes that could be alleviated before you go down the road of starting lifetime medication for our patients. But it, it's worth it. The medications are beneficial. We've shown them in, in plaque reduction. We've shown them in outcome studies with the Reduce It trial. And I think it's something that we need to start thinking about when the appropriate patient presents themselves to lower their CV risk significantly. Those are all wonderful points, Dr. Budoff. Thank you so much for reviewing that. 
And as I was listening to you review this, I just remembered another point that was made when we were discussing the strength trial that, you know, patients would do anything to take a miracle pill to help solve all their problems. But it's difficult for us to try to condense healthy diet, Mediterranean diet, uh, healthy, you know, fish and diverse healthy fats and just cram everything in a pill and have our patients just get wonderful outcomes from that, which is unfortunately not something that we can do. Dr. Budoff, thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast. Your, your insights and expertise have been absolutely invaluable as we tackle this topic. You know, we usually close the episode with a question we ask all of our guests here on Cardio Nerds. What makes your heart flutter about lipids? Yeah, you know, it's been an incredible development in the field over the past few years. You know, 10 years ago or so, we had very limited treatments for lipid management. As I mentioned earlier, niacin and the fibrates were kind of bombing out and there were a number of negative trials. You know, is that am I, we can argue how that should be positioned, but but the outcome study was underwhelming, the Improve It trial. And we really just had a few different statins that we could potentially use. And that was about it for really good outcome data. And then all of a sudden, PCSK9 inhibitors, icosapent ethyl data, bampadoic acid now is available. And on the near horizon, we're going to have glycerin and maybe even a new fibrate, as I mentioned. So this field has become really reinvigorated after a long hiatus. And given how important it is, really the most modifiable risk factor in being with lipids, we, we really need other tools in the tool chest. And it's really exciting for me to see these options develop and being available to us one by one, really helping us get our patients to goal and hopefully most importantly, getting them to live longer and healthier lives. Dr. Budoff, what a great note to end on. And I'm just inspired by your excitement for this field and your excitement and dedication to patient care and investigations. And it just makes me really, really, I kept, this is the third time I'll say excited, but excited to see what's on the radar and on the horizon here in the next coming years. So I thank you so much for such a great discussion. Thank you also to Dan and to Tio for helping moderate this and especially to Tio for helping put this script together as well. Listeners, this is just part one in our journey into the world of triglycerides. In upcoming episodes, we'll be discussing the management of patients with hypertrichosideremia, the pharmacology of omega-3 fatty acids, and like I said, the recent groundbreaking reduced in strength trials. So I hope you stay tuned. We have a lot of great stuff on the horizon. Take care. Beep. Beep.